Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org. All right, good to see everybody today. My name is Grant. If you're a guest with us, thanks for being here. Um, We are Fountain City Church. We really believe that God has called us to mobilize families of missional disciples locally and globally. Uh, And so we really believe that even getting into the word this morning, that the Lord will pierce our hearts, shape our lives so that we're the kind of people who are willing to say yes to whatever he calls us to do. And that makes this a very dangerous service. Amen? Yes? Because we really don't believe that we're here just to do church per usual, but that God wants to speak and change our hearts and our lives. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, and we're going to jump in. Um, it's good to have some guests with us. Sarah Nell Beach, um, it's good to have you with us. Um, Sarah Nell grew up in the, the youth group where I was, I was not ever her pastor, but I was always like a year ahead or something like that, but always watched her grow up. And Sarah, I'm super glad to just watch God's call and his ministry being unfolded for you. And I really think it's just going to be a season of taking some tremendous steps in learning. Uh, and you've been really faithful and the Lord really pleased with that. And I just want you to hear that, okay? Uh, so it's good to have you with us. Y'all get to know Sarah Nell. She'll be here just this week. And she's getting married in two weeks and then moving to the great white north, Omaha, Nebraska. And so, uh, so pray for warmth for her blood, okay? I've been watching the Alone series, and all they do is just eat fat and try to stay alive. Anybody else in here watch that? Okay, are you in a bad place when you watch it? I need to know. Because I've recognized that when I'm feeling really like heavy, I'm like, I need to watch survival shows right now, you know, (laughs) an introvert in an extrovert's world. Okay. All right. Quick recap from last week. Uh, Last week, we talked about the progressive healing that every single one of us who are in Christ, we are all a part of this progressive healing uh, in learning who Jesus actually is. Many of you have said yes to Christ uh, in like a robust way, you've said, Lord, do whatever you want with my life. And then you realize that Jesus may actually do some things in your life that you didn't have planned. And some of you, in fact, I might actually say all of us, we came to Christ feeling like we understood who he was. And the, the, what the scripture has borne out in Mark chapter 8 is that we don't actually know who he is. That it's a little bit of bait and switch where he says, come follow me. And then he exposes you to what that really means. But this week, Jesus really cures us of this bait and switch. He wants you to know what it's going to cost you to be with him. And he's, he wants you to know what it's going uh, to afford you when you are with him. We are very much like the blind man in Mark 8, 22. Uh, and we saw last week this really painful encounter between uh, the apostle Peter And, excuse me, the Apostle Peter and Jesus, where Peter one moment declares, you are the Messiah, and Jesus says, that's true, don't tell anybody. And in the next moment, Jesus says, and I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to suffer. And Peter says, how dare you? That's not our vision of your life, Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him. And Jesus actually says, get behind me, Satan. Right? Same guy. And all of us live in the tension of those two spaces. We all live there. And this invitation for all of us to develop a view of Jesus that is who he says he is and what he is called to do 
is desperately important. Now, we talked about how we also develop a distorted view of Jesus, and I just want to run through those really quickly. The first way, if you want to develop a distorted view of Jesus, is that you can just simply misread the scriptures and pick and choose the stuff you like and then, like, box out the stuff that you don't like. Anybody do that when they read? We love the parts where Jesus saves. I'm not quite sure what happens in the Old Testament when there's judgment. I just scribble that out. God, I can't stand the idea that you also are full of justice, which means that you are making a judgment about things right and wrong, uh, and that has a penalty with it, right? So, so misreading the scriptures is the first way to develop a distorted view of Jesus. And how many of us misread the scriptures? All of us. Whew. Okay. So you, you sense the problem. We really have to come with hearts that are surrendered to what the text says and to what the Spirit says and not simply what I want it to say. Secondly, if we want to develop a distorted view of Jesus, then we just look through the curvature of our own ambition. And every one of us carries ambition, knowingly or unknowingly. We often live as though Jesus is here to fulfill my wants, my desires, my vision for my own life, instead of allowing him to determine who I am and where I'm headed and what it is that I'm supposed to be doing. All of us have ambition. We saw this in the Apostle Peter last week who we were talking about how he would have been the second in command if Jesus had taken a military stance and crushed the Romans. Peter had a vested interest in Jesus being a certain kind of Messiah. And for many of us, we have a vested interest in Jesus being a certain kind of Savior and Lord. I want him to agree with me. I want him to like all the things that I like and hate the things that I hate. I want him to hate Brussels sprouts, right? I want him to to like certain things politically. I'm using Brussels sprouts because it's easy. There's really heavy stuff about how we view politics or sexuality or uh, money. If you really want to get in people's um, hard places, talk about money, how we use our money. Yeah, we all have our own ambitions. But thirdly, our worldview. Every single one of us has a worldview that we bring to the scriptures and to Jesus. And we talked about how the worldview is not what we're looking at, but it's like a pair of glasses. It's what we're looking through, right? And so many of us look at Jesus and we look at the world around us through something that shapes and forms and informs how I live my life. And so the question is, is, is the scripture informing and shaping and teaching you how to live or is the world around us? And finally, we talked about our propensity just to make Jesus in our own image. All caught up? Excellent. Okay, Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Um, this may be one of those kind of quintessential passages of what it means to belong to God. Uh, here's my, my forewarning. Jesus doesn't pull any punches when he's talking to his disciples or the crowds in Mark chapter 8. And so this morning we're going to read it and we're just going to lean in and push in. And I promise you it is going to a place that, um, that will interest you deeply. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. 
That term disciple in verse 34 was an esteemed term in Jewish culture. Not everyone got to be a disciple. In fact, in a room this size, maybe 2% were people who would rise to the top of their culture and whom a rabbi would look and say, this person carries tremendous promise, tremendous acumen. They can learn the scriptures, they can teach, they can learn to apply it. Uh, and in this moment, Jesus actually turns with this high quality calling of disciple and he declares it to everyone. Right. He is a rabbi. Remember, he is not just some rogue out in the wilderness. Jesus is a rabbi. Many actually say that he was from the, the line of Pharisees and that Jesus is actually this active rabbi. And he's declaring to everyone who will listen, not just his disciples, what would only have been available to the most promising, most standout individuals in that culture. And he is saying, if you want to be a disciple, it's available to anyone who will follow me in this way. And that's his preface to delivering this punch. What way is that? You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. Think of that. The, the defining line and what it means to follow this rabbi. Jesus says, if you want to be a person who will stay with me, who will feel my, my peace, my power, my presence, the intimacy of the Father in your life, then it is going to mean that you are willing to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow. And the reason that this is so vastly important for us today is that much of the church believes in the presence of God and in the power of God and in God's desire to deliver peace and joy and His manifest presence into your life, but none of us like to talk about dying. None of us want to talk about what it's like to release our own way and our own desires and our own preferences. In fact, we make Jesus a tool to accomplish my wishes and desires for my own life. And Jesus says, if you are going to be my disciple, you have to die to all of that. And in our culture, we have made it possible to follow Jesus without actually following Jesus. To be called a Christian and to never actually look like Christ. To be spiritual but never actually filled with the gifts or the character or the personality of the Holy Spirit. That is why, friends, our culture is in trouble. Not because of the hell out there, but because of the hell in here. And Jesus turns to those of us who would say, we want to follow you. And he says, you are invited. You're invited. Come. There is room at the table. There is room with me. I'm calling you to my side. I'm calling you to myself. I want people to whom I can reveal my deepest longings and my character and who I am. Come with me. But it will cost you everything that the world says you need. He says, deny yourself. That word in the Greek for deny yourself is aparnoemai. I have no idea if that's right. It's probably wrong. Aparnoemai. I don't know. I'm not going to try it again. Um, it means to deny, to affirm that one has no acquaintance or connection with someone, to forget one's self, to lose sight of oneself and one's own interests. Another definition is to disown. He says disown yourself. 
If you're going to follow me, you have to disown yourself. If there's anything that we as Americans don't do well, it's denying and disowning ourselves and what we want. Right? We, we have people from all over the earth that come to America because here you can achieve the dream to be and do whatever you want. And friends, that is beautiful. I love that about our nation. If you've ever traveled across the world, uh, I was in Tajikistan years back and we couldn't say certain words. Like there were coded words and things that I just couldn't say out loud. If I said discipleship or church or Jesus, they were saying, hey, KGB is listening. You could get locked up. Right? Or when we go to Turkey, I'm not allowed to share the gospel on the street. Freedom is a good thing. Don't hear me wrong. But when this translates into our faith culture, that I can be and do whatever I want and still be called uh, Jesus' sons and daughters, his, his brothers and sisters, then something is terribly wrong. Because our culture is built on self-gratification and comfort and independence. But Jesus, in this moment... Leveling off with a crowd, he says that an essential ingredient in following him is making the choice to deny the very thing our culture says to fight for, yourself. Every day you wake up in a culture that is breathing this one thing into you, that you are so special that everything you need to do is fight for you. Are you with me? And there are some healthy things that come into this conversation, but there are so many negative things. He says, fight for you. And Jesus says to disown that old vision of life, to take up his vision of life, to disown even yourself. I love that word disown because it's the picture of you and I not owning something. When was the last time you looked in the mirror and just had that realization? I don't belong to me anymore. I don't own myself. I don't own this physical body. I don't own it. I don't own my house. I don't own my cars. I don't own my kids. I don't own my wife. She, she belongs to Jesus, and I steward a relationship. Are you with me? We, we disown ourselves because we don't actually have ownership there. And, and that's just the point. When, when we commit our way to Jesus, we no longer belong to ourselves. We don't own us anymore because we're owned by someone else. Friend, you are owned by Jesus. You are the possession of the King. And He delights in those who belong to Him. He cares for them. He protects them. He provides for them. He puts His identity into you. Belonging to Jesus is so much better than belonging to me. Jesus is good and patient and kind and merciful. He fills me with life and love. But I don't belong to myself anymore. And neither do you. You don't have a... If you belong to Jesus, you don't have anything that's yours. Are you with me? It's all His. You're simply a steward. That's why tithing is such an important conversation. We don't talk about it a lot because, honestly, it feels like you're giving birth to a center block anytime you, like, talk about giving. <laughs> I've never given birth, but I would imagine it's pretty painful to do that with a center block. I, guys, I don't own anything. I don't own anything. Some of you have tremendous wealth. Bless you. That's amazing. But it's not yours. Some of you have very little that's okay. You have the infinite resources of the kingdom of God. God will feed you and care for you no matter what your 401k looks like. 
But so, so tithing is a way that I affirm to Jesus. It's all yours, but here's the deposit. Are you with me? Sabbath is the same. I had an interesting call this week from a very good, loving friend who said, hey, you got to do better with Sabbath. She just said, you're not taking care of yourself. And I said, yes, ma'am. Why? It all belongs to him. And if I don't think it belongs to him, I'll work seven days a week to make sure that everything works out. And Jesus says, if you trust me, you will rest. Why? Because you don't belong to yourself. You were bought at a price. Listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says. It says, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you? Whom you received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Listen to that. It's tremendous. You are a stewardship in God's hand. What you have, the clothing you have, the money you have, the children you have, the community you have, you're stewards. Christianity is not an invitation to an easy thing. It's, an, it's not an addition to our normal life. It's a complete overhaul. Christianity is not a cultural renovation. It's a demolition down to the studs. He takes it all the way down to nothing and rebuilds completely. Some of you got saved later in life and you knew this, right? Because you had built a culture around what you wanted and where you wanted to go and what you wanted to do. And suddenly you came to Christ and he remade you and he changed you. But he said, and now you will learn like an infant what it is to walk again. I have friends who live in other cultures uh, and they go into these cultures and they will always tell you the hardest part about being in a brand new culture and learning language is that you're like a big useless baby. You can't ask where the bathroom is. You don't know what food is. You don't know what ingredients are. You don't know how to connect your phone there. Can you imagine all the stuff that we can kind of seamlessly do and suddenly you're at about 5% capacity of what you're normally capable of. And when we came into the kingdom of God, we were the same, all of us. The hard part is for many of us, we grew up in the church. And so we think, no, this is just our culture. And Jesus slowly is deconstructing some of that out so that you can learn to simply follow him. He's not calling to just, or he's not coming to you simply to freshen up the paint on your life, make you a better citizen, pay your taxes, tithe, and go to church. He tears it all down to the studs and says, let's start again. And this is the call to follow. Whose image is Jesus making us into? The longer I go, the more I look at the conversations we're having around sexuality and politics and all of the above, right? The big pillar things that we're struggling with in our culture right now. I think the deeper question is, whose image is Jesus forming me into? Right? There are whole portions of the church that believe we're becoming Jews. But that's the whole point. I don't think that's a great reading of the scripture. Others of us think that he is forming us into um, the conservative, ultra-right-wing population of the U.S. that's going to restore order. I don't think that's a good reading of the scripture. Or even just the revolutionary social justice movement who goes for all the oppressed, but sacrifices morality along the way. I don't think that's a good reading of the scripture. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5 that he is, he is transforming us into his image with ever-increasing glory. 
The, the trajectory of your life and formation and discipleship is being formed into the image of Jesus. So why do we view things like politics and power and money and finances and sexuality so differently than the world around us, even from those who we might agree with politically? Why do we view it so differently? Because we're being formed into the image of Christ. Are you with me? Others may want a great nation or may want to be formed into the image of, of the Jewish people. But, but Jesus, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says that he has broken down the wall of hostility and he is making the two one, both Jew and Gentile, and he is reconciling them both to the Father through his body. The image that, he is, being, that is being formed in you as a Christian is the image of Christ. Are you with me? And so the picture that we're aiming for is not a person who has more peace but thinks the same old way. He says, no, I'm forming the image of my son into you. I'm putting the spirit and the life of Jesus into you. The mission and the purpose and the values, the qualities, they're going to look like Jesus. And if they don't, we need to have a check in us that says something is wrong. If I can continue to stay in church and reading the Bible but reinforce a worldview that departs from Jesus, we're in trouble. The Apostle Paul makes it clear what this looks like in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Listen to his words. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuted the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, I was faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost everything. Listen to this. I consider it all garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or for us, a righteousness that comes from building our identity around our culture, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. The Apostle Paul resonated with this message of being new in Christ so much that he changed his name after he got saved. We don't know the moment. It's not really listed in the scriptures. We just know that he was Saul persecuting the church, and then he was Paul. And the, and the scriptures are littered with people who just like that have so disowned themselves and who they weren't, were before Christ that uh, this new life in Christ has called them to have a new name. And for some of you today, I just, I, I want to tell you, I believe that you need a name change. Maybe not a legal name change, but for you to have such a different resonating idea of who you are and what your life is all about that you don't even resonate with that old person. I disown that person. I don't know who that grant is. Christy's not with us this morning. Christy Foster today is a different human than Christy Foster two years ago. And if you were to sit in the same room, you would see a different person. Not, not a happier Christy, not a more peaceful Christy, a different person. Are you with me? Casey McQuinn is a different person. I've known him before and after. He's a different human. Many of you, different humans. 
right? Because Jesus' work is so transforming that he changes us and shapes us in a way that we could not even imagine. He says you must deny yourself. You must disown yourself. And the world around us is saying, hey, you just continue to build whatever you want because that's what this is all about. And Jesus says, forget all of that. I want to start over. Secondly, he says you must take up your cross. You know, a cross wasn't a shiny piece of jewelry for them. You guys know that. It was a weapon of torture and shame and humiliation. It was so heinous, so terrible that in Deuteronomy 21:23, it actually says that whoever is hung on a pole or a tree is under God's curse. And in the New Testament, God dies on a tree. Everybody looked at God and said, he is under God's curse. Think of that. Jesus says, if you're going to follow him and be with him, is to be seen as cursed in the world. And it bears reminding that if we are called to take up our crosses, then we are called to join in the humiliation and suffering of Jesus. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 says it like this. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power. This is right after he just rejects his identity before. He says, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. All of us want resurrection power. How many of you want resurrection power? He says, if you want that, you have to die. We have to take up our cross to get there. Now, how does that happen in our culture? I think we get a very extreme picture of this oftentimes when we read this passage, right? And so uh, as teenagers, when we raise funds for missions, good old Bible Belt teenage years, we, uh, I would strap on the, a physical cross. We would take a cross around town. Have you done this? Anybody? Drag, thank you. Come on, church kids, raise your hands. Okay. And then we would drag the cross, like a 12-foot, you know, I don't know why it wasn't seen. It was like a 150-pound cross on a teenager's shoulder all through the town. I'm not saying it was bad. I'm just saying we dragged a literal cross. And this morning, it would be a very different message if I issued everyone your cross on your way out, and you're like, you're going to jar fly today. Take it up, you know. <laughs> Get to work. you got to strap it on your car a certain way, like, you know. Is that what he's saying? Maybe at some point, but not now, right? No, in our culture, it's not often through physical suffering. I think there will come a day where that will be the case. There will come a day where even in the West, that it will most likely look like a Pakistan where when you declare your faith, there's a good chance that you can be killed. I could take you to parts of the world today, into Palestine and places, where to say yes to Jesus and to do it publicly costs you your life. How many of you know the Bible reads slightly differently to them than it does to us? Because it costs me nothing. You know what it mostly looks like? It looks like the murder of my reputation. To take up our cross means that you are so willing to identify with the person and the words of Jesus that they will also curse you because you look like him. It comes through the rejection that ensues when we make decisions the world can't understand. Rejection for our decisions about sexuality or committing to radical generosity or believing that we hear God's voice. Have you ever said that to an unbeliever? It's always an interesting conversation. You know, in the world, they, 
classify that as things, right? Okay. So we actually believe that the invisible God sent his son, the Trinity, to earth to die on a cross for the atonement of our sins. Have you ever said your beliefs out loud to people who don't believe? It's a good practice. We believe that we hear God's voice. We separate ourselves out from the things of the world. We choose the path of humility. We live in integrity and honesty. We live in modesty and simplicity among those who believe their possessions is what makes them who they are. Ladies, how about when others treat you like a prude or a goody-goody for dressing modestly? Men, how about seeming weak when you don't cut others down, when you defend those who are the butt of every joke? Suffering alongside the poor and the oppressed. The cross life is the command to die to yourself so that the image of Jesus, the actual life of Christ, can be lived out through you. He says, die so that you can live. Lay down what you think life looks like so that you can take up what life actually is. Man, this, this is Genesis played out over and over. We always grab for the tree that we think will get us to what life ought to look like. And there is the tree of life. It's right there. I, I do it in God's way. I trust in him, in the person of Jesus, or I cling to the, the tree that I think will get me what I want. The promise of taking up your cross and dying to your preferences and desires and perspectives is this, that the life of Jesus is formed in you. Grant, why would I do that? Why would I cling to the cross? Why would I die to my preferences and desires and perspectives? Because the only thing that survives, survives the cross is Jesus. Because the way for the life of Christ to be formed in you, the way for his image to be developed in you, is to die to self. Because in that, the life of Christ lives through you. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says it like this. I have been crucified with Christ. He says it wasn't just Jesus who died. I've been crucified with him. And so I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The problem is I don't die to myself all at once. Are you with me? Now, Jesus died once and for all, right? Hebrews tells us that he's died for our sins once and for all. So the question of your forgiveness, the question of your sin is answered for all time. Are you with me? Listen to me. Jesus has died for it all. And if you belong to Jesus, you've been forgiven and cleansed. But I am daily faced with the decision about whether or not I will satisfy my flesh or put it to death in partnership with the Spirit. I'll put it like this. Jesus doesn't change his mind about you. God, God's made up his mind. Some of you are here today and you're like, I'm not sure if God loves me or wants me. God has not made, he has made up his mind about you. He loves you infinitely and he wants you in relationship with him. Period. There's no comma. There's no semicolon. There's not an additional statement. That's done. And he's made every provision for you to be free and whole in him through the forgiveness of sins. However, he still gives me power to walk away. Daily, I am faced with the decision about whether or not I'm going to satisfy my flesh, to be greedy, to look at pornography, 
to sink my life into all kinds of ethical and morality things, to foster a culture and a lifestyle of hatred and resentment and bitterness. Are you with me? Or if I'm going to lean in, if I'm going to forgive, if I'm going to practice generosity and go beyond myself to actually loving and laying my life down for other people, every day I have to make that choice. And if we're honest, we all fail that and we all succeed. Right? Isn't that where the problem lies for many of us? Taking up my cross is easy once. But Jesus says you are a living sacrifice. You are to daily Take up your cross and follow me. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 says it like this. So I say walk by the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. But if you were led by the spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this won't inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Now here's where we get shipwrecked. Grant, I thought we get saved by grace through faith. So how come that list doesn't get me entrance? Because while you were dead in your transgressions and sins, God made you alive with Christ. Right? He brought you in while you were broken. But this is what we have done in the church. We have said, you're allowed in, and you can stay that way. And he says, if you're going to be in, you have to change your clothes. Right? You remember the parable of the wedding banquet? Everyone's invited. He'll pull in anyone and everyone. It doesn't matter how far you've been or how far you think you are from the Lord. His grace says you're invited. However... You belong to him. And so you can't persist in the old ways that brought division. He says, I'm going to clean you and I'm going to make you new. Finally, he says to follow him. Jesus is going somewhere. Don't just deny yourself or disown yourself. Don't just take up your cross. Follow him. Right? It's not our choosing. He leads and we follow and often the places and the people to whom he is going demand a level of denial and death of my wants and preferences if I plan to be where he is. He says, follow me. Church history tells us that the apostle Peter fled from Rome under the emperor Nero because Nero was, he was destroying the Christian populations. He would do these incredibly terrible things like cover them in tar and pitch and light them like candles in his corridors. And so they would just burn alive. He would stitch them up into the bodies of animals, and then he would allow lions to eat them. This is what was happening if you just claimed that you belonged to Jesus. And Peter, knowing that Jesus actually said, hey, if the gospel's not received, shake the dust off your feet and leave town. Peter said, I'm out of here. I'm not getting eaten today. Right? 
And he gets halfway out of the town. He's on the street outside of Rome. And history tells us that he sees Jesus walking back toward the city. And Peter asked him in Latin, as quo vitis, where are you going, Lord? And he replied, I'm going to Rome to be crucified again. And Peter, seeing Jesus walking back into Rome, knew that Jesus was calling him to go back. And he went back to Rome where he was murdered and crucified upside down as a martyr. Where is Jesus going? Our culture continues to tell us that Jesus is going wherever the best money is. Wherever the prettiest girls are. Wherever the culture and climate are the best. Whichever has the best uh, accommodations as a city. Where are you going, Lord? I'm going back into the face of persecution. I'm going back into the hard places so that men and women can be saved from the darkness. I'm going back there. Are you coming? And listen to me. Our, our trump card is always be obedient to Jesus. Right? So some seasons he calls you to go into plunge into the darkness. Some of you are built for that. Some of you guys are like, yes, finally. I've been waiting. Right? Like, got this Rambo thing in you. Like, I'm ready, Jesus. I'm ready. Let's go kill the darkness together. And others of you may be a little more timid. No, that's not at all my vision of life. Jesus, don't you dare tell me to go somewhere that's uncomfortable. That can't be you, Lord. You would never lead me away from peace. <laughs> Truly? <laughs> now listen, this is an easy moment for levity. But every one of us needs to ask the question, am I building my life on what leads me to just a space that feels better? Or am I following Jesus? It's the difference of him cleansing me from my sin and being my Lord. I love somebody who cleans me, makes me feel good. Jesus, make me feel good. And he says, yeah, but are you going to follow me? Because I'm going this way. Everybody else is going here. I'm going here. Why do people continue to plunge themselves into hard neighborhoods? Why would you move to East Highland if you were Steve and Kristen? Why? Why would you do that? Why? Brandon and Christina, why would you choose this path? This is not an easy path. Seems like a terrible idea. Be missionary supported, step out in faith, trust the Lord to provide for you to be a part of an outreach. Why would you do that? Why would you work for Teen Challenge? My gosh, don't you know? That is not easy. Addicts are, they have a hard time. That's a stupid decision. But Jesus says, are you following me? Are you going where I'm going? I'm going to them. I'm going to Columbus. I'm going to East Highland. I'm going to the darkened corners of the earth. Are you coming with me? Or are you just looking at the bottom line on your financial report? Are you following me? What does it look like to follow Jesus? It looks like surrender. For some of you this morning, I really believe it's not going to be in making some massive decisions today. We're not doing like a sign up for who's going to Somalia this morning. Some of you, some of you have not put your vocation and geography on the altar and said, Jesus, where are you headed? Where are you leading me? to Omaha. Nobody wants to go to Omaha, right? <laughs> Nobody. I don't know anybody. I've been there. It's not that great. <laughs> I'm just kidding. 
My brother-in-law lives in Omaha. He's pastoring a church there. Why would you go there? Jesus calls me. Wherever he is, that's where I want to be. I'm at a ton. But when has that ever stopped me? <laughs> Let me close with this. We are not religious sadomasochists. We don't take pleasure in pain and suffering. Are you with me? One of the weird twists that happens when you read this passage is like, we've just got to embrace that life is hard and that we're going to die. You know what I mean? Um, that's just an immature zeal. I was, when we were moving to Turkey, I had this really terrible experience. I was at a school of ministry with somebody who met really well up in Atlanta. And uh, after preaching, some of you have probably been to this ministry school, preaching and teaching, and somebody said, I have a word for, for you, brother. And I said, oh, thank you so much. Uh, and she looked at me, just squared off, and she said, you're going to die. I was like, <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> you think that's going to thrill me? <laughs> like, I'm not excited about that. I don't want to die. I'd like to live. We're not sadomasochists. We're not taking pleasure in the pain and suffering that comes on the journey. We just know that if this road has pain and suffering on it, but Jesus is on it, it's the only road for us. It's the only place we're called to be. And friends, can I tell you something? He's not against your pleasure or your satisfaction or your delight. But Jesus is the only one who knows how to access everything that you deeply long for. It's not in what you think. And all of us could say that. It's not in sexual encounter after sexual encounter. It's not after building a life of possessions and junk. It's not uh, about having so much money. We can't take any of it with us. The grave will steal it all. No, Jesus, he knows the path to infinite satisfaction and pleasure for you and I. He knows it. He knows what it's like to belong to him. He knew that at the end of his life, he would be with the Father, and he did everything to please the Father so that he could stand before him in his presence with joy. And friends, nobody in the world is going to tell you to do that. This is what I hope happens today. I hope that out of this, we start to form a personal and collective culture of saying yes to Jesus and leaning into what he has said and no to everything else, no matter what that costs. Right? And that's really the invitation. We get Jesus. It's like the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. He said he found this treasure and he went away in his joy and sold everything so that he could get that one thing. In joy. When you find Jesus, you will give it all in joy to get the one thing. Right? I want to close with this. Um. Jesus says quite simply that we can spend all of our lives trying to hold on to life as we define it, and we will only lose it. But if we lose our lives for his sake and for the sake of the gospel, then we find it. And for every single one of us, there is this question, what will you choose today? Does Jesus love and forgive me? Yes, infinitely, 100%. But do you choose him today? Do you choose to put the flesh to death so that you might be found in Christ? I want to close with the passage out of verse 38 because we don't like this version of Jesus. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, 
in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory with the angels. Jesus is the faithful Son. That's what Revelation says about Him. He's the faithful Son. And He looks at our lives, guys, and He is not giving us an excuse for being faithless. He actually demands faithfulness. And He longs for it. He longs to see people who have received life and salvation who will lean in and stay faithful even in uncomfortable moments and seasons. This is the only place where we really struggle with Jesus. We're fine with him when he's threatening Pharisees. It's when he levels the playing field at us and he says, if you are ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of you. Do you hear the invitation? Guys, take my, my perspective Take my words into you. Live in them. Allow them to permeate your life. Don't shun them because they don't fit what you want. Your ideas of purity and relationships and all those things, let my, my words permeate you. And I just want to say, all of this points to the end. He uses this word, son of man, here. Uh, that's a Daniel 7 word. Let me read Daniel 7 to you. He says, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, which means the glory and the splendor of God. He approached the Ancient of Days, and he was led into his presence, and he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus, why are you saying this? Jesus has just leveled incredible cost to his people. This is what it means to follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and walk after me wherever I go. But he points here to the end and he says, I am the son of man from Daniel 7. I'm not just a suffering servant who sits in pity and pain. I am the glorified God going to the presence of God with authority and dominion and power. And when you say yes to me, you will be with me where I am. And I will put my glory on you and I will fill you and satisfy you in ways you can never imagine. Do not be ashamed of me because when you say yes to me, I am glorified and you are glorified in my presence. Say yes to him. Friends, say yes to him. The world will continue to say, do whatever feels best to you. And I tell you, that is the way to death. Lean toward life. Lean toward the only wise God, Jesus, and say yes. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? The call today is, is simple. It's surrender. The picture of surrender, you guys have seen it if you've ever watched Cops for more than like eight seconds, right? Run as you may, even the fastest. It ends the same way every time. A takedown or hands up. You with me? Surrender always looks the same. And so this morning, I know this feels heavy, but listen to me. He's inviting us to be with him forever. He's inviting us into glory and splendor and dominion and power, and it comes through us simply saying yes to him in this life, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow. And so this morning, if you just say, Lord, that's, I'm just saying yes to you again. Today, I reaffirm my covenant with you. 
Lord, we will deny ourselves. We will disown our preferences and desires and independence from you. And we claim you. We disown everything that we think makes us ourselves. God, our personality, our Enneagram type, we disown that for the sake of knowing Jesus. We disown all the things that would define us for the sake of being formed and developed into your image. Father, I pray that if there's anything that we're holding on to instead of you, that we would release it today. And God, that we would know, God, our culture doesn't define us. Our sexuality doesn't define us. Our identity, our vocation, our relationships. Jesus, would you reteach us who we are in you? For some of you, there's an actual action that needs to take place where you just simply say, I disown myself. Wherever I've just been chasing after my own pleasure and desires, I say no to that. Jesus, give us your vision for life. We disown that old person. Some of you are leaning back into old sinful relationships and habits and routines. And the Lord is gracious and kind and forgiving, but he is telling you that those things cannot exist and you inherit the kingdom of God. But Father, we repent. We repent. We confess our sin to you, Lord. I pray that you would give us a desire and a hunger for holiness, Father. Help us. God, not a, not a holiness that's stingy and sharp and crusty, but Father, one that is tender and open and deeply satisfied in you. Give us a hunger for holiness. Father, we surrender. And lastly, where is Jesus going? For some of you today, putting your vocation and your geography and the way that you live, it's got to go back on the altar. You've taken it off because everybody around you has said it's okay to take it off. And Jesus says, nope. Nope. I have a plan and purpose for your life. I'm going somewhere. Do you want to come with me? We say, yes, Jesus. Lead us. Guide us. Father, if I have been overly heavy or too loud, Lord, I pray that what needs to be transmitted, what needs to be spoken and communicated would rest in people's hearts. Teach me, Lord, the same words that I'm speaking. Help me, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen.